0: This media has been presented to you by the Maryland Men of Faith, where men are challenged and encouraged to form the character of Christ. For more information, please visit mmof.org. Morning Maryland Men of Faith. It's a good manly good morning. Appreciate that. Anyone else just kind of like love being in a room full of dudes, just being manly and talking about manly stuff? I haven't shaved for a week looking forward to this. This is a place where no one's going to give me any hard times for that. Uh, and that's my warning to you. Don't give me a hard time about that. I'm with men. I can be a man. Amen? Amen. All right. Uh, men can shave too. That's okay. I, I got no beard game. So all of you who have beards, just know what you have is a gift that I wish I had and I don't. So, um, All right. So, I do help to run a discipleship and evangelism school for the Pennsylvania Conference. For time's sake, I'll just um, kind of share that it's training young people to own their faith, to find their calling, and to change the world. And adults can also come. The second semester of our core program is open to adults. Uh, Mark Finley teaches for us on preaching. David Asher on apologetics. James Rafferty on Daniel. Don McIntosh. Uh, Gary Gibbs, our conference president. Rico Hill. Paul Conniff. Uh, Nathan Renner. Justin Kim. Uh, and many, many more. Uh, Our website is coreevangelism.com. You can find more information there that covers a whole aspect. We basically train 18 to 35 year olds. It's a nine month program in Pennsylvania. It's a great opportunity for churches to sponsor a young adult to believe in them and to get them proper training to figure out why they're an Adventist, how to see Jesus in the heart of the Adventist message, and how to intelligently and effectively share that with the world around them. They're canvassing this semester. We do Bible work second semester. And adults can come to the second semester of our program. So if you're not in the 18 to 35 demographic, you can still come second semester. And you get a majority of our theology classes and you get five months of Bible work experience. And so we're super stoked for that. So you can find information there. All right. So uh, I want to address a topic this morning that I think is super important. And so let's pray and then we'll start. God, thank you for this chance to study, to grow and to hear your voice. And I pray that you would challenge us today, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds and that you would give us a lesson that we will not soon forget. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. I believe that Jesus is coming soon to claim his bride. Do you believe that? By the way, claiming his bride, November 13th, Spokane, Washington. If you've got nothing to do, come join us. Um, RSV closes tomorrow, though, so you do need to do that. Um, If you're actually that benevolent and you want our registry, come talk to me at lunch, I guess. That would be amazing. But uh, anyway, just pray for us that I don't blow it. I've got uh, 40-something days to not blow it between now and then, so just pray for me that I uh, become the man that God longs for me to be. I believe Jesus is coming soon to claim his bride. Scripture tells us, though, that before this happens, a time of great distress will come upon the earth. And I believe that what we're going to cover today can prepare us for that. Some principles that can help us for that. Many are wrestling with trust issues. We're convinced that God is going to ask things of us That we just aren't ready for, or at least not yet. You ever been there? Like, God, you can have all of my life except for this four by four square right here. Maybe later, but right now we need this. This is imminent domain. (laughs) I just can't envision giving all, all. Mostly all, maybe all, all. Some of us may struggle with this, but listen to this. From the upward look, we're told our first lesson is to learn the will of God. Even though we pass through trying circumstances and then knowing his will, what are we to do to obey unquestioningly? But here's the promise. Such obedience will always be rewarded. So your first role as a man, as a leader in your home, as someone who aspires to be a leader, right, is to find out what is the will of God. And then we're told to obey unquestioningly and such obedience will always be rewarded. That's one trajectory. Here's the other one, and I'm apologizing, not apologizing in advance, because this one's pretty gnarly. Ellen White says this in Faith and Works 45. She says, when God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. <laughs> Yo, this will make you crumple over in pain. How many people can testify to the fact that's true? Yeah, that lady is an inspired prophet for sure, Right. <laughs> When God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. So what we're going to cover this morning is a contrast looking at the lies of Abraham and Lot, because I believe these two principles, our first job is to know the will of God and to obey unquestioningly. and the other is that when God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. Those two principles, I think, are very clearly revealed in the lives of Abraham and Lot. I hope you brought Bibles today. Um, My students are not actually present in class if a Bible isn't with them. So I hope you got a Bible. If not, I'm going to mark you absent, and I'm not sorry. (laughs) Genesis chapter 12. Yes. Genesis chapter 12. I know you think you're here. You're not really here. Your better half is not with you. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, beginning of verse 1, speaking of Abraham, or Abram. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, from your family, from your father's house... To a land that I will show you. He doesn't even know where it is yet. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. This is in contrast to Genesis 11 where they're trying to make their own names great, building the Tower of Babel. And you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 4. So Abram departed as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him and Abram was 75 years old when he departed to or from Haran Okay, so some of you may weep over this call Some of you may rejoice over this call leaving the family and stuff, right? It can be kind of tricky These are very patriarchal families are very close and yet he chooses to obey what God says Even though he doesn't know where he's going but the promise we're given is such obedience will always be rewarded. Well, once Abram gets to Canaan, doesn't quite look like that at first glance. Because when he gets there, there's famine in the land. You ever been there, fellas? So good to just talk to dudes. Um, I can just use one pronoun. So it makes life so much easier. 50% more efficient. Um, but when he gets there, there's famine in the land. You ever been there? Where you follow the will of God and the first thing you encounter is hardship and maybe you're tempted. Did I go right? I moved my family, but then the house sale fell through. The job fell through. What do I do? I already sold the other house. How do you navigate these circumstances where when you go where God leads, initially it doesn't look like it was a good decision. Then he goes to Egypt, right, and he has this whole struggle. Uh, my fiance's name is Sarah, by the way, so please pray that I never do what happens next because he basically traffics his wife. Um, that's literally what happens. Like he basically, She's so beautiful, that if everybody sees her, they're going to want her. And he goes through this scenario, but Lot is his nephew who basically he treats as his son. He raises Lot at this stage as if he's his son um, because his brother has died. And Lot witnesses Abram in this stumbling moment, this kind of losing faith moment in Genesis chapter 12. Then we get to Genesis chapter 13. They come back from Egypt and they have bounteous livestock. That's actually a word. Someone accused me that, that wasn't a word in the middle of a sermon once. And my temptation in the following presentation was to put the dictionary definition of bounteous on the slides, but I didn't. But it is a word. They had many flocks, many herds, so much so that there was beginning to be difficulties between the herdsmen of Lot and of Abram. So Abram basically says, look, if you go right, I'll go left. If you go left, I'll go right. And he actually gives the choice to the younger, to Lot, even though Abram is the one who was promised the land. And so uh, that's basically what happens in Genesis chapter 13. And, but listen to what it says going to Verse 11. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed east. He makes a decision based upon what he sees. It looks nice. He chooses Vegas, basically, right? <laughs> they've got an Apple store. They've got a mall. They've got, does Best Buy even exist anymore? Anyway, they've got all the infrastructure. They've got the library. You know, we'll do it for the kids. And so he chooses this area, and he pitches his tent even as far as Sodom. I mean, I won't live in the city, but I'll live close enough to make the commute easy, Right? This is how his decision begins, okay? He makes a decision based upon what he sees and what he wants, not based upon what God would want, okay? And we'll see what's going to happen after this. You probably know where this is going. But the men of Sodom, verse 13, were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Fellows, let me ask you a question. Is that where you want to raise your kids? No. Is that where you're currently raising your kids? Right. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. It's a rough place. It's not a good environment for the upbringing of his kids. Okay, but listen to what happens in verse 14. The Lord said to Abram after the lot had separated from him, lift your eyes now and look from the place where you are northward, southward, eastward and westward. for all the land which you see. I will give you and your descendants forever. So notice Lot makes a decision based upon what he sees. Abram makes a decision based upon what God wants And then God promises him whatever he sees. He prioritizes God and then God gives him all the things that he sees around him. And I'll make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if a man could number the dust of the earth, your descendants also could be numbered. Arise, go all over this land for I give it to you. So he moved his tent and he dwelt in the terremot trees at Mamre, which are in Hebron, and he built an altar there to the Lord. He also has his priorities straight, right? First things first, we will build an altar to worship this faithful God who's brought us to this place. Listen to this: Lot manifested no gratitude to his benefactor. Instead, he selfishly endeavored to grasp advantages. Lot overlooked the moral evils encountered there. He chose him all the plain of the Jordan and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. How little did he foresee the terrible results of that selfish choice? He overlooked the dangers because of the convenience, right? I'm closer to infrastructure and whatever. And again, when God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. And this totally proves true in the life of Lot. Okay, we already dealt with 1418. Abram soon after this moved to Hebron in the free air of those upland plains with their olive groves and vineyards, their fields of open grain, and the wide pasture of encircling hills. He dwelt, listen to this, Content with his simple life, leaving to lot the perilous luxury of Sodom. Isn't she an excellent writer, by the way? Yeah. So he was content with it. Wherever God wants me is the best place for me to be. And many times God calls us to a place of simplicity. Right. For the benefit of our spiritual growth, our communion with him, keeping our priorities straight and a safe environment for our kids. By the way, this isn't a sermon on country living, but there certainly are some benefits there for sure. Yes, I live in the country. Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14. So then uh, the people, of the land rebel against the kings of the land. And there's this massive scenario where lot is taken captive. Okay? He was living in Sodom at this stage, uh, which is not a good thing uh, for obvious reasons and i'm going to skip down to verse 12 then they also took lot abram's brother's son who dwelt in sodom and his goods and departed so when he first got there he thought no 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 no, like i'm going to have some boundaries like i don't want to live in this place but i will live kind of nearby now he's living in the place and the place gets sacked, right and he's taken captive Word gets to Abram. He grabs some of his trained men in his household. They get busy, they beat the bad guys and bring back Lot, his family and all of their goods. Now, this situation is the warning shot. How many people live out in the country in the backwoods? You know what the warning shot is? Yeah, I'm reloading, get off my property. That's the warning shot. This is the warning shot for Lot. He's in a place he should not have been and his response to this scenario, I could have died, oh my goodness, Not going through that again. You think that's what's going to happen, wouldn't you? Like logically, but we get to chapter 18 a little bit later. Where's Lot living? Inside. It's just so hard, man. Like we got there's there's public transportation. My kids have the school system. There's the library. It's so easy. Even though God speaks to us and warns us and even spares us miraculously, we don't deserve it. And we still find ourselves in the same situation. You ever been there? God supernaturally does something for you. You say, I'm never going back there again. And then you find yourself, right, like going in deeper. This is the story of Lot, okay? This is his scenario. This is his story. And then Abram obviously says, you're not going to make me rich to Melchizedek or all the other people, sorry, that are going to give him these goods. And he gives a tithe of all. um, And then he says, only God's going to make me rich, not you, and so forth. Chapter 15, okay, actually listen to this. She says in messages to young people, we should choose the society most favorable to our spiritual advancement and avail ourselves of every help within our reach. For Satan will oppose many hindrances to make our progress towards heaven as difficult as possible, right? Now I'm not just talking about where you build your home, right? It's the things you spend time with. What are you surrounding yourself with? What are you looking at? Who you hanging with? Who you eating with? What are you doing with your life? What types of decisions are we making regarding our associations? Because if we don't choose to prioritize our spiritual advancement, our journey towards heaven will be difficult. Because that's Satan's gig, right? Is to make your journey heavenward more difficult. She says, We may be placed in trying positions, for many cannot have their surroundings what they would. But we should not voluntarily expose ourselves to influences that are unfavorable to the formation of Christian character. And I need to kind of park and bark on this for a second. Because some of us are of the mindset, hey, God calls people to live in secular, difficult environments. Is that true, by the way? Yeah, I am not of the mind that you need to avoid the world at all costs just to try to protect your kids. Right? Because if you're avoiding the world, you're called to win the world. Right? Like... Every single one is born into the kingdom, a missionary, we're told, in the spirit of prophecy. All of us. You can't win the world if you're hiding from the world. There needs to be a proper balance here. But some of us are the mindset that God calls people, well, God calls people to live in difficult environments. And so we put ourselves there. The fact that God calls people to these environments does not mean that God called you to that environment. Are you understanding the difference? Just because God calls people there does not mean that God has called you there. And this is what she says on that idea. When duty calls us to this, we should be doubly watchful and prayerful that through the grace of Christ, we can stand uncorrupted. So if that's not where he's called you, that's not where you should be. But if it is where he's called you, through the grace of Christ and your dependence upon him, you should be even doubly diligent, right? In your spiritual disciplines and so forth, because it's a difficult place. But she says, through the grace of Christ, you can stand uncorrupted. Amen? Amen. God does call people in a a hostile environment. That's true. Just make sure that God called you there before you move there. Our first goal is to know the will of God and then to obey unquestioningly, not to presumptuously build my own story and hope that God will still bless it. Do you see the difference? Oh, I'll go because God calls difficult people there. So I'll go and I just hope that God blesses me. That's presumption. Do you see the difference? Okay. She continues. Lot chose Sodom as a place of residence because he looked more to the temporal advantages he would gain than to the moral influences that would surround himself and his family. They got the good infrastructure, right? We're next to the Apple store. We got the school system. We got this, this, and this, but we don't count the costs of that, right? It's something we need to think through. So what did he gain so far as the things in this world are concerned? All those possessions that he had are destroyed. Part of his children perished in the destruction of that wicked city. His wife was turned to a pillar of salt, by the way, and he himself was saved. And then she quotes scripture, so as by fire, basically barely. Is it really worth it? The things that we're choosing to put our roots into and to invest in, is it really worth it? If some of our kids are lost, my wife ends up turning to a pillar of salt and and no, so what you were thinking, I'm living with a pillar of salt, I'm just, the saltiness. Um, no, it, I, she turns into a pillar of salt and he's saved, but barely. Is that really the legacy you want to live to the world? He lives a worse legacy after that, by the way, and she'll cover that in the next. She says, nor did the evil result of his selfish choice in here. But the moral corruption of the place was so interwoven with the character of his children that they could not distinguish between good and evil, sin and righteousness. The legacy he leaves to the world is the Ammonites and the Moabites, two perpetual thorns in the side of the nation of Israel. That's his lasting legacy. He gets his own daughters pregnant, not just any kids. He gets his kids pregnant with his kids. You do the math. It's not good. Again, when God lets man have his own way, it's literally the darkest hour of his life. Then we get to Genesis chapter 15. And God basically tells Abram in the very beginning of 15, I'm what you're looking for. I'm your exceedingly great reward. I'm enough for you. Based upon what we hear about Abraham and, and, and Romans and other places, Hebrews 11. Uh, I'm so tempted to talk about that, but I won't. But he, we get this idea that he's this like fearless totally perfect man of faith. But just a reminder, the dude trafficked his wife twice. He laughs in the face of God and he sleeps with a teenage handmaid who didn't have a lot of choice in the matter to build kids because we'll see here in just a moment, they don't have kids yet. So there's times when Abram struggled in his experience and we get a picture of that in Genesis 15 because he says, uh, I'm your exceedingly great reward. And the response of Abram is, uh, yeah, but you promised me kids and I don't have kids. Eliezer, a servant of my house is going to be my heir. So he's struggling with this. And can we ask people who love God struggle at times to believe that God truly is enough? Can we struggle with that? Absolutely. That's why we're calling the message. Is God enough? We can struggle with this. Right? Yes. But I also want this. Is it possible to make a promise from God more important than the God of the promise? Yes, it is. Can we turn the promise of God into idols? You better believe it. If I just get married, then I'll be okay. If I just have kids, then I'll be okay. If I can just get that job, then I'll be okay. If I can just get that girl, I'll, can we do that? Even things that maybe God wants to give us, can we make them more important than him? Yes, and that's his story. Okay. So Abram wrestles with this in Genesis 15, but God keeps working with them and promises. God doesn't give up on them. Are you thankful for that? God doesn't slap him around. He says, let's go for a walk, Abram. And as he walks outside, he says, look at the stars. If you can number them, such will be your descendants. My promise to you has not changed, even though you're struggling right now. My promise is still true, God says. And it says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Amen? Amen. And he was called a friend of God, James 2.16 tells us in Genesis chapter 15. That's the, the narrative here, okay? So, my promise is still true. All that happens. Then we get to Genesis chapter 16. And in Genesis chapter 16, look at the story of what goes on here with Sarai. She had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Verse 2. So she says to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Who's responsible for them not having kids? Whose fault is it, according to Sarai? It's God's fault. Can we do that? Can we do that? I'm not saying should we do that. I'm saying, is it possible that we say and do stuff like that? A hundred percent, right? Didn't you sow good seeds in the field? Well, then why are there weeds? Our very questioning of the existence of evil many times is us projecting blame upon God. Didn't you create the world good? Why are there bad things? Why do bad things happen? You're aware of the fact that God asked that same question, aren't you? Why are you resisting my love and my pursuits of you? Why is everyone rejecting me when I'm offering them healing, freedom, and deliverance from their predatory, evil, selfish behavior? I'm asking the same question, God says. Why are bad things happening when I'm pursuing every soul on this earth all the time? So in this scenario, she blames God and she says, do this. So they do so and it's not a good situation, right? They've been 10 years in the land at that stage and this is where I mean, this happens. And then she blames Abram because, you know, you listened. Um, and it's just not kind of a good situation. And, uh, yeah, God does make a promise to um, Hagar, but that, that we'll, we'll close with that for now, for time's sake. Then we get to Genesis chapter 17. And God gives the promise of circumcision or the covenant of circumcision. Uh, it's kind of this, like one of those scenarios I'm not going to get too graphic, though you are a bunch of dudes but uh, you kind of know what this is and how it works and stuff, but he basically is making it clear to Abraham that it's not what you do with that thing that keeps my promises, it's what I do there's a wound of reminder that Abraham incurs as a grown man in making covenant with God, making it clear that the fulfillment of my promises is based upon what I say and do, not what you do right, I mean he Yeah. Anyway, so you get the idea of that. Then we get to Genesis chapter 17 or later in chapter 17, where God actually changes Abram and Sarai's names to Abraham and Sarah. Right. You'll be the father of a multitude is the promise that's given. And in a Hebrew culture. Right. A name and a character are synonymous. Right. You've read Pilgrim's Progress. Bunyan picked up on this. There's an evangelist in the book of sorts. What's his name? Evangelist. Evangelist. What's the main character's name on his Christian journey? Christian right and so forth so names and characters are synonymous God is speaking a change and in life into Abram I see you as the father of a multitude Genesis chapter 17 and to Sarah right there's a transformation that will happen in both of them then we get to chapter 18 okay in chapter 18 uh, by the way Abram laughs at God in chapter 17 still after 15 where he believed God is accounted him for righteousness he still laughs in God's face in chapter 17 and says, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? And shall Sarah, who's 90 year olds, bear a child? And he said, oh, God, that Ishmael might live before you. Why won't you let my solution be the solution? Can we do that, fellas? I know you didn't tell me to do this, but I've already done it. So can we just let this be the fulfillment of your promise to me? And the answer is No. That's not what I promised, right? Then we get to chapter 18, and it's this very fascinating narrative. It says The Lord appeared to him, to Abram, by the terrapin trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifts his eyes and he sees three men standing before him it's Jesus and two angels, the pre incarnate Christ and two angels. And he says to them, my Lord, if I've found favor in your sight, do not pass on uh, by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree and I'll make you food. They say, do you said he goes and tells Sarah quickly, make some bread for our guests. And then he tells a young man, hasten to prepare this calf and so forth. Then they say in verse nine, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. How long is the time of life? Yeah, nine nine to ten months, right? I'll return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Now she was listening in the tent, and they were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Verse 12, therefore she laughed within herself, saying, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abram, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Somebody needs to hear that this morning. That's right. At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. What I love is that even though Abraham and Sarah are struggling all throughout this journey of waiting and faith, God remains faithful. Amen. Amen. God keeps reminding them of his promises. God keeps reminding them that he keeps his promises. Is anything too hard for me? Absolutely not. But Sarah denied it, saying, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. And then he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, it's fascinating. Hebrews 11 actually says that because she believed, she conceived. Did you know that? It's this conversation that challenges her unbelief, her fear, her feelings of betrayal and abandonment. Those are real, aren't they? Can we incur difficult wounds and belief systems because we're in the waiting seasons of God? We feel neglected and rejected. We get bitter. We get entitled. We do our own thing. God speaks into that space. And once she comes to see things as God sees them, according to the time of life, she has a kid. But it took this direct conversation for God to speak into her unbelief, into those belief systems. Aren't you thankful that God is in the business of healing us, not just correcting us? Yeah? God wants to go to those deep root structures. Okay? And so then uh, this story happens. The two men, the two angels, start walking towards Sodom. And then he says, Can I withhold this thing from Abram that I'm about to do? And so he tells him, here's what's going to go down. I'm going to go investigate to see whether what's happening in Sodom is as bad as I've heard. Now, does God need to come down from earth or from heaven to earth and then walk from Abram's tent to Sodom to see whether it's as bad as he's heard? There's a principle here that we as Seventh-day Adventists should embrace and remember. God is in the business of investigating before he renders a final judgment. And we see this theme all throughout Genesis, by the way. Happens in Genesis 11, happens in Genesis 2, happens in Genesis 3, Genesis 4, actually 3 and 4, 11, and so forth. It happens throughout this narrative where God investigates before he renders a judgment. So he's not going for his own benefit. He's going for our benefit to recognize that he investigates before he makes final judgment decisions. So he tells Abram what's going on. And then Abraham clearly realizes who's with him because he says, shall, are you going to destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then he says, shall not the judge of the earth do rightly? He clearly knows who he's talking to now, right? Not just some wayfarer. This is literally the judge of the earth. And so he says, what if, what if there were, uh, what did he say? And what's the first number he gives here? I always forget. 40? 50? Uh, would you destroy this city? For fifty? And he says, If I find fifty, I won't do it And they said, What about forty? What about thirty? What about twenty? What about ten? Now I remember I was at three B and camp meeting some years ago and uh oh what's his I just forgot his name. It's your money, isn't it? G Edward Reed. Ed Reed made this profound statement. He said that God kept giving mercy as long as Abraham kept asking for mercy that God only stopped giving mercy when Abraham stopped asking. But guys, do the math, right? He, he, gets, he whittles down to 10, and he thinks, okay, we're good. He at least feels that he spared his family, because do the math. You've got Lot, Lot's wife, virgin daughter number one, virgin daughter number two, and he has other daughters who have sons or, or husbands, right? And it's plural, so you have at least son-in-law number one and daughter, son-in-law number two and daughter. There's at least eight people in there. Some of them may have kids. He basically has whittled this down to his own direct family. Abraham has. But think of the mercy of God in telling him this beforehand when Jesus speaks to him. Because he knows the heart of a father. Jesus understands the heart who longs for those that he loves. He loves. Imagine how Abraham's going to feel tomorrow morning looking from his tent and seeing a mushroom cloud coming out of Sodom. A son of his, basically, Lot is there. So God Jesus tells him, and he barters back and forth, and Elwhite makes this beautiful and profound statement. She says, Once he had saved them by his sword, now he endeavoured to save them by prayer. And the amazing thing is, Lot is the beneficiary of a whole lot of blessings and things, and he's totally ungrateful. Completely ungrateful. He gets the warning shot and moves back into the city and goes even deeper in his responsibilities and attachments and desires in this place. And then we see in this scenario. So there are times where you got to get in and get busy. You've got to grab a sword, not literally, right? If you don't like her boyfriend or something else, don't literally do that. But there are times when you have to physically engage in a scenario to look out for those that you love. There's times when you've got to do that, right? They're not listening. You've got to make that phone call and say, yeah, they're not getting on that plane. They're staying with me, whatever the situation may be. And there's other times where the only thing we can do is pray. And God has called us to both as men. All right, amen? And we see this in his love for Lot. So that's chapter 18. um, And it basically closes. And then Jesus starts walking from Abraham's tent to Sodom. And the angels get there by chapter 19 while Jesus is still on his way. Okay. And then we get to chapter 19. So the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. This is chapter 19, verse 2. And he says, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. They say, no, but we'll spend the night in the open square. He says, no, 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 no. You come to my house. okay?" and so he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread. You almost get the sense that he knows how bad this place is and he feels bad for anyone who doesn't understand. You ever grow up in a rough neighborhood and you can tell somebody doesn't know that they're in the wrong side of town. (laughs) There's a lot of mm in this room right now. And you just, you kind of want to get them out of here because you know how to navigate this environment, but they don't. In his scenario, why is he navigating that environment? Especially after a warning shot, right? So he's in this scenario. He tries to get these guys out of here. He clearly is aware of how bad it is, but he's not pulling his kids out. But he'll protect a stranger? Are you understanding some of the the, the strange uh, logic that goes on here? And so then, of course, you get a situation where he gets a knock at the door and uh, it's not it's not the Girl Scouts. You know know where this is going. It's not a good situation. They want these men in an unholy way. And then there's a scenario where he offers his wife or his daughter. That's not excusable. Don't even try to make excuses for it. It's disgusting. By the way, there's this principle that there are descriptive texts and prescriptive texts in Scripture. Are you aware of this? There are texts that just describe what happened, and then there are texts that are prescriptive. This is how you should live your life. Clearly, Genesis 19 is not how you should live your life. Do I need to like defend that, or is that just clear? Nearly the entire book of Judges is descriptive. It's ugly. It's, it's just bad. And there's this consistent theme throughout the book of Judges that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. There's a repeat of this narrative, by the way, in Genesis, in Judges chapter 19, actually, 19 and 19. It's ugly. It's gross. And there are are some less lower lights in Judges, but most of it's not that great. And this is what happens when humanity does their own thing. When God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. God allows for these narratives to be in Scripture, not to endorse the behavior. Don't defend Lot. Well, he knew they were gay, so they wouldn't take her. Or what it, it, There's no explaining it. It's repulsive. It's gross. It's just bad. Now, they don't respond. But then it says that the angels strike them in at the door with blindness. Okay? This is verse... um. <clears throat> Yeah, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great. So they became weary trying to find the door. I'll come back to that here in just a second. Then in verse 12, they say, have you had anyone else here, son-in-law, sons, your daughters, whomever you have in the city, get them out of this place. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So he goes and speaks to his sons-in-law and imagine this narrative you guys have to get out of here. The city is so wicked. It's so evil. It's so bad. You got to get out because God's going to destroy it. And what does the text say? To his sons-in-law, he seemed to be joking. You need to ask yourself the question, why is it that it seemed like a joke to them? I'm going to come back to that here in just a second. Why is it that this seems like a joke to them? Um, I mean, we can just do it now. If I tell my slides, I'll just skip it later. Imagine the mindset of his sons-in-law. They're they're, they're kind of confused. You know, you didn't seem to be this worried yesterday. And if this place really is so bad, why do you live here? And why did you raise your children here? Are you understanding the confusion? Some of us are just fully convinced. Yeah, I know I'm not where I should be, but... When that whole like that was really loud. Sorry. When that whole Sunday Law thing happens, like I'm getting out and I'm pulling people with me. This narrative tells me it doesn't work that way, because even though Lot is referred to as a righteous man, and some people run that. Well, the Bible says he's a righteous man. Hey, do righteous men make dumb decisions? First of all, yes or no? Ella White says he's saved barely. Do you want that to be your standard of righteousness? No. Let's not defend what happened here. Okay. And he nearly tried to give his girls off to these carnal fools. This is bad. So, but imagine the scenario that we think that we're actually going to have a desire to disengage from where we put root structures for years, easily. I got the mortgage. My kids are in a school they like. You think you're just going to leave. It's not as easy as you think, especially in the midst of a crisis, right? When all your freedoms and stuff are being taken away. And so that, that's the first thing. And second of all, His family didn't want to leave. His kids don't want to leave. His wife doesn't want to leave because they're so attached to the life that they've built in a place they never should have been. They're so deeply enmeshed with a place and a life they never should have had, which makes it more difficult. And second of all, you think you're going to bring people with you? You were just drinking with me last night. We hit up the club last week, and you're telling me to get out because this place is wicked? They're going to laugh. Are you understanding? Yeah, man. Your witness is null and void in the face of a crisis when you are just as compromised as the people around you. So for you to say that you're going to pull people out and that you're even going to want to leave, this narrative is a warning to us. And maybe this is why Jesus says, remember Lot's wife when talking about the end of time as it was in the days of Lot right, and Noah and all these other people, and remember Lot's wife, he's telling us there's a lesson there for you in that narrative that will benefit you in this future time. Are you with me? And this is why we're having this conversation right now, because we're just sure we're going to be ready, we're going to get out, because we know all I have to do is wait until that thing happens, right? and once that thing happens, then I'm going to start making changes and making decisions. And this is basically what happens with the angels. You've got to get out. And him and his wife are like, oh, yeah, you're right. So um, we're going to call U-Haul next week, and we'll start going through our stuff. We have too many sweaters. We've got too many. Like, there's this sense and where are like, yeah, you're prob- there's this glacial shift in a pending epic crisis. So they grab this dude by the shirt collar and yank him out. It's that even though he knows he shouldn't be there, right, wouldn't be caught dead in that place. Now he lives there. He's got a mortgage there. His kids go to school there and they love it there. Are are you understanding what happens? Convenience does this to us. So they pull him and they say, don't look behind you and escape to the mountains. And then he tells the angels who have been sent directly from Jehovah himself to save the guy's life. He says, that's not going to work. I'll die. This is how he responds to angel sent from heaven to save his life i'm not gonna make it i'm gonna die and they actually acquiesce they tell him to go to the mountains i won't make it says is is it not a small one can i go to this small city he goes to the small city and as fire comes down from heaven he's so spooked he doesn't stay in the small city he goes in the mountains anyway guys sin makes us dumb anyone want to say amen to that yeah it makes us stupid So he's arguing with angels. He doesn't understand why no one sees the imminency and the danger when he's trying to leave. He himself doesn't really want to leave. It's an ugly scenario, guys. And so then we get to this next situation uh, where eventually, you know, his wife turns to a pillar of salt. They go to the cave. We'll come back to that in a second. But here's something I learned from this narrative. Miracles won't change people's condition. We see it in Genesis 19. They're knocking on the door. They're wanting to take the men inside of the house, and it says, the text literally says, the men were struck with blindness. They've received a divine judgment from God, but the text also says they weary themselves trying to find the door. They don't say, pray for us, we're so sorry. They're still trying to get what they want. Miracles don't change people's conditions. We see this in Exodus chapter 14 as well. Israel has left Egypt. The Egyptians are pursuing them. There's a pillar of cloud and fire behind them. And in this scenario, it's time to, ah, we just gotta, this isn't good, this is bad. And so there's, the amazing thing to me is when the Egyptians get to Israel and they see a supernatural manifestation of the glory of God between them and Israel, their response is basically, oh, it's just a red light. We'll just wait. This is insane. God is fighting for them and they're not doing anything. Then the next situation is, The Red Seas parted. Israel goes through on dry ground. And as they go through on dry ground, once the pillar cloud moves, they think, oh, good. This is our time to pursue them. And they go through a supernatural miracle. This is insane. They go through a supernatural miracle pursuing the Israelites. And it's only once God takes the wheels off of their chariots that they begin to realize, wait, God's fighting for them. Retreat. And not one of them survives. You know what that tells me? It, it, it leads to a follow-up question in my mind. Should God have to take the wheels off our chariots before we come to our senses? And by the time that happens, it's too late, fellas. If you're waiting until this stuff goes down, it's too late. We don't have time to play with it at that stage. We talked about why his sons-in-law laughed. He was trying to live a righteous life while being comfortable in the presence of foolishness. And it Never works. Never works. I mean, yeah, I'd never be caught dead doing whatever, right? Fill in the blank. But I do watch it on Netflix, and it doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me at all. I listen to music that approves of it. Whatever the situation is, I'm not here to bag in your entertainment choices. The point is, I would never do that, but I'm actually quite comfortable with other people who do it. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't bother me watching it, hearing it, and so forth. The tragic story of his daughters is here's the idea that they learned in the Babylonian school system of their day. Uh, The the text actually says this. It's heartbreaking. Okay. So it says, uh, verse 31 of Genesis 19. Now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there's no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. Is that true? That there's there's no men to come into them? No, there's even good godly dudes. Here's the thing. I don't want one of them. The only man I want to be with is a man that looks like that because that's what I'm used to, that's what I've been around, that's what I want. Can we have those same views, fellas? Not just a bag of the ladies here, can we do that? There's no one to choose from, so we go for somebody who doesn't have our same faith views, doesn't have our same values, because there's no one else to choose from. That ain't true. By the way, fellas, statistically, you have way more options than the ladies do. The percentage of good, godly, Bible-committed men that are available for a young woman to pursue is unfortunately low. It's very low. So you have young professional women right now who are godly, great catches, can't find a good husband. Passive, tepid, unconverted boys who don't want to be adults. That's what they have to choose from. So, fellas, you've got a lot of good options. The ladies don't have a lot of good options. So, pick the good ones. Don't blow it. Amen? Amen. And if you are not that man, by the grace of God, he's willing to make you that man. Amen. What he needs for you to do is to be willing to say yes. Amen? Amen? God can change the trajectory of your life if you let him. So, then they say, so here's my brilliant idea. Let's get him drunk. You sleep with them. Then we'll get him drunk tomorrow, and I'll sleep with them." These are the ideas that came from the school system that dad sent them to. And we end up with the Moabites and the Ammonites and so forth. It's a tragedy, guys. When God lets man have his own way, it's the darkest hour of his life. But go with me to Luke chapter 18. We're almost done. Luke chapter 18, 29 and 30. Luke chapter 18, 29 to 30. So he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one. How many? No one who's let house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in the present time and in the age to come eternal life. This is the promise of God to you this evening or this morning, fellas. If you put him first, whatever you're leaving, whatever you're walking away from, God will give you more blessings right now and in the hereafter. That's the promise of God. Amen. Whatever it is that you're afraid to cut ties with, that you're afraid to let go of, that's more important to you than God is, if you put him first, you don't have to wait until heaven to receive blessings. He will give you blessings in the here and now and in the hereafter. Listen to this. Many who profess to be Christ followers have an anxious, troubled heart because they're afraid to trust themselves with God. They're not anxious because they're trusting God. They're anxious because they're afraid to trust him. They do not make a complete surrender to him for they shrink from the consequences that such a surrender may involve. You don't even know. So when God calls you to make that surrender, the devil's hot, stinky breath comes in the back of your neck and says, hey, ah, that doesn't sound too fun. That, that costs a lot, man. Are you sure you're willing to do this? And the response is, you're afraid of what it may cost you is what she's saying. You don't even know. She continues and says, They do not make a complete surrender to him for they shrink from the consequences that such a surrender may involve. But unless they do make this surrender, they cannot find peace. If you're looking for peace, it's not going to come with a dual citizenship. Only one passport, fellas. You can't rock two. You only get one. You got to make a choice. There are many whose hearts are aching under a load of care because they seek to reach the world standard. They've chosen its service, accepted its perplexities, adopted its customs. Thus, their, li- their character is marred and their life made a weariness. You're not exhausted by the burdens of God. You're exhausted by the burdens of the world that you won't let God have. You understand the difference? Our Lord desires them to lay aside this yoke of bondage. Satan promises you freedom in following him. Does it work? Absolutely not. There's no freedom there. Only servitude. God offers you real freedom. So he says, lay aside that yoke and take my yoke, for it's easy and my burden is light. Worry is blind and it cannot discern the future. But Jesus sees the end from the beginning. In every difficulty, and how many difficulties? In every difficulty, he has a way prepared to bring relief. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God's not withholding anything good from you guys. Whatever you're afraid of letting go of cannot give you what he can. It's not going to work. It cannot comfort you, heal you, or help you in the same, in the same ways that Jesus can. It just can't. She says, Our heavenly Father has a thousand ways to provide, of which we know how much? Nothing. And those who accept the one principle of making the service of God supreme will find perplexities vanish and a plain path set before their feet. You know what that implies? Then there are sometimes when we don't know what to do, and part of the reason why we don't know what to do is because we're afraid of what he may say. So we're not fully open to the voice of God in our moments of decision. And then we get mad at God for not speaking to us, when at the end of the day, God knows you don't want to hear from him. God is in the business of giving us the desires of our heart, even if it isn't him. And he honors the request of the heart over the request of the mouth. So if you say, God, I'll go where anywhere you want. But in response, you say, but Lord, please not Michigan. That was me, by the way. Please don't call me to Michigan. It's cold. It's scary. Ah, so he called me to Pennsylvania. I didn't see the exception clause there. I actually like Pennsylvania. It's gorgeous. But we do these things, don't we? Where we say, God, I'll go wherever you want. But we're really not open to what he wants. We're really not a blank sheet of paper. So in turn, he's not really Able to give us the answers he longs to give us because we don't want to hear it. Does God honor your nose? Yes or no? Does he keep pursuing you in spite of it, though? Thank God for that. Hallelujah. So maybe the reason why we've got these perplexities and we can't hear the voice of God is because part of us is afraid of what that voice may say. So we're not fully surrendered and open to what that may look like. Are you willing to walk up to God in this difficult decision-making process that you're in, whatever it may be, kids, no kids, marriage, no marriage, career, college, whatever. Are you open to handing him a blank piece of paper and to say yes to the answer before you even know what it is? Do you actually believe that he has a thousand ways to provide for you, which you know none, and that no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly? Do you actually believe that today? Is God actually enough for you? He can work with that. If your answer really is yes, God can work with that. He wants to bless you more than you want to be blessed. I think it's Psalm 78. He says, open your mouth wide that I may fill it. But he says, my people would have none of me. They didn't want me. So I turned them over to the desires of their heart, he says. Will you actually be open to what he has to say? And if the answer to that is yes, obedience is always rewarded. Always. Always. But when God lets man have the desires of his heart, right? When God lets man have his own way, what happens? It's the darkest hour of his life. Anybody else want to close some of those dark chapters today? Lord, maybe maybe you're in a place that you should not be. vocationally, locationally, whatever, relationally. God can do something about that today if you let him into that space. God sent a warning shot two angels and Jesus Christ himself to pull Lot out of a place he never should have been. He'll do the same for you, fellas. He loves you that much. But do you trust him enough to turn and walk wherever he's leading? Or are you going to complain and moan every step of the way out of a place that you never should have been? Are you with me? God in heaven, I believe these men and this man right here, we want you. We choose Jesus. We choose to go where you're leading us That's our first responsibility, to determine the will of God and to obey unquestioningly. And we thank you for the promise that such obedience is always rewarded. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us, that you would speak to our hearts and minds about the places of where we are right now. And if we're where we should be, help us to stay planted and to not deviate. If we're not where we should be, God, I pray that in the deep love that's in the recesses of your heart and that overflows out of your heart, that you would pursue us that you would pull us out, and that you would help us to walk in the right path. Thank you, God, that you're not limited by the bad decisions we make and that you're in the business of redeeming, healing, and liberating your people. We pray that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus. God, help us. Lord, forgive us for being selfish, short-sighted, carnal, and, and just ignorant, willfully ignorant. I pray that you would forgive us, that you would cover those sins with the blood of Jesus, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and empower us to be the men that you've called us to be, and that we would desire that too. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope this presentation from the Maryland Men of Faith has been a blessing to you. Your feedback is welcomed. Please visit us at mmof.org.